arms. Give it your all. We'll, we'll drink, drink the wine till the cup is dry and kiss the girls and then the cry and toss the dice until we fly and dance with Jack of the Shadows. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Tales of a Red Arm. I'm your host, Justin. We're jumping into chapter 55, what is written in prophecy. This is the precursor to the last chapter of the book. So next episode slash chapter will be the end of book three of the Wheel of Time. And then we'll move on to book four. So stick around. We can get through this together. All right. So chapter 55 takes place in Rand's point of view. And he kind of just enters the Stone of Tear, or the Heart of the Stone, inside the Stone of Tear, um, amongst the polished redstone columns. And he's pretty familiar with the place due to his dreams, so he kind of knows where he's going. Um, and it's kind of quiet, but he sees something kind of like flash ahead, like a little bit of light. And it's obviously Kalandor. The calendar is hanging hilt down in midair, and nobody can touch it except for the Dragon Reborn. Now, the weird thing about this prophecy that I've always wondered, and maybe you have as well if you've read it before, or obviously since you're new, or if you are new, um, yeah, probably haven't. <laughs> but who put it here, and how did they make it so only one person could touch it? It'd be like... They have to attune it to the soul of the person because obviously lose their Telamon is long dead, right? So anybody who is quote-unquote reborn is going to be somebody else. So how do you know who's going to be able to get it versus who's not going to be able to get it? And if it's like an invisible shield around it to prevent you from getting to it, how does it know to let this one particular person through? Is it the pattern itself that made it? Is it something else? I don't typically see the pattern as being able to create things, especially scenarios. It kind of, things wrap around itself. But if this is put in place long before the dragon is reborn and long before, well, I should say after Luz Theron Telemon dies, but long before uh, Rand is ever born, how on earth could it have possibly have known that? Now, technically, the pattern can stitch things together because it's a giant, like, basically blanket weaving kind of deal. But it would have to know something from the beginning, and if Rand were to get snuffed out, say, then obviously he wouldn't be there to get it, and it would just sit there for literally all of eternity and never change, which... At least until potentially he comes back again, if that's even an option. So it's a little strange, but usually prophecies are written by a person, and the person typically has something to do with it, because whoever writes the prophecy would have to be the one who put it there, because otherwise they wouldn't know that that's the only person who could show up. It's just, it's just, a, it's a strange concept that I haven't technically heard anyone actually mention, but maybe somebody has, and I just haven't found it yet. But I thought it was an interesting idea. But Rand's thinking to himself, if I am the Dragon Reborn, if I'm not just some half-mad man cursed with the ability to channel, a puppet dancing from a moraine in the White Tower, you know, it's waiting for me. But then he hears a voice say, take it, Luce Theron, take it, Kinslayer. And he's spun around, and there's a tall man with close-cropped white hair who steps from the shadow among the columns and was familiar to him, but he doesn't know who the guy is. But the guy's in red silk coat black stripes down its puffy sleeves and black breeches, tucked into elaborately silver-worked boots. He didn't know the man, but he had seen him in his dreams. He's thinking, you put them in a cage. He says it out loud. He's thinking it out loud. Egwene and Nynaeve and Elaine, in my dreams you kept putting them in a cage and hurting them. The man dismisses it with a hand gesture. He's like, oh, they're less than nothing. Perhaps one day when they have been trained, but not now. I confess surprise that you care enough to make them useful, but you were ever a fool, ever ready to follow your heart before power. You came too soon, Luce Theron. 
Now you must do what you are not yet ready for, or else die. Die, knowing you have left these women you care for in my hands. And he seems to, like, pause, expecting Rand to react or something. He's like, I mean to use them more, Kinslayer. They will serve me, serve my power, and that will hurt them far more than anything they have suffered before. Calendar is behind Ran, and it's, you know, throwing a pulse of warm against his back. He's like, who even are you? Like, I don't, I don't even know who you are. And the white-haired man laughs. He's like, oh, you don't remember me, do you? I do not remember you this way, anyway. A country lad with a flute case on his back. Did Ishamayel speak the truth? He was ever one to lie when it gained him an inch or a second. Don't you remember anything, Luce Theron? And Rand's like, a name, what's the name? He's like, call me Bilal. But when Rand doesn't react, he kind of scowls and is like, take it. He throws a hand towards Kalindor and he's like, once we rode war to side by side, and for that I give you a chance, a bare chance, but a chance to save yourself. A chance to save those three, I mean to make my pets. Take the sword, countrymen. Perhaps it will be enough to help you survive me. And Rand's like, do you believe you can frighten me so easily, Forsaken? Balzaman himself has hunted me. Do you think I will cower now before you, grovel before a Forsaken when I have denied the Dark One to his face? And we get to a very interesting point. Is that what you think? Bilal says softly. Truly you know nothing. And then there's a sword in his hands, a blade carved from black fire. Take it, take Kalindor. Three thousand years while I lay imprisoned, it has waited here for you. One of the most powerful Sangreal we ever made. Take it and defend yourself, if you can. And as he moves towards Rand, as if to drive him back towards Kalindor, but Rand raises his own hands, and he is filled with sighting. And it's a sweet rush of the power, but it's a stomach-wrenching vileness of the taint. And he holds a sword wrought from red flame, a sword with a heron mark on its fiery blade. He stepped into the forms Lan had taught him till he flowed from one to the next as if in a dance. Parting the silk. Now, I kind of want to break these down little by little. So parting the silk would be like a top-down kind of slash, but it could be from an angle, depending on you know, samurai-type slash with a katana. Um, water flows downhills, also a downward strike. Wind and rain. Uh, wind and rain probably could be from sides, I'd imagine. But there's a... The blade of black fire meets the blade of red and showers of sparks, and it sounds basically like they're just clashing together. Kind of like how two lightsabers hit. They make that extra loud noise as opposed to just sticks thwacking each other. But Rand comes back into guard stance, trying not to let his sudden uncertainty show, because on Bilal's blade, a bird so dark it was nearly invisible was there. The heron. He had once faced a man with a heron-mark blade of steel and barely survived. He knew that he himself had no real right to the blade master's mark. It had been one of the sword his father had given him, and when he thought of a sword in his hands, he thought of that sword. Once he had embraced death as the water had taught, but this time he knows death's going to be the end, permanently. So Bilal was better than the sword, stronger, faster, an actual true blade master. And Forsaken laughs, and he's amused, and he's swinging it back in quick flourishes. And You're a greater sword man once, Luthaeron, he mocks him with. Do you remember when we took that tame sport called swords and learned to kill with it? As the old volume said men once had? So, the Age of Legends is this point where there's like, it's complete and utter peace everywhere. And that obviously got wrecked. Um, but they get to read the histories when men once had killed each other with swords. So, I, well, I guess I should say it's not necessarily peace, but they had peace comparative to ancient times because they didn't use swords. They used probably guns or some sci-fi-ish type thing. The fact that they remember it as in the old volumes. Now, that's old for the Age of Legends, which means they're, like, ridiculously ancient to now. 
It's like the complete opposite side of the time of the wheel. And it's like, do you remember one of those desperate battles? Even one of our dire defeats? Probably not. You don't remember anything, do you? This time you haven't learned enough, and this time I will kill you, Lutheran. But then his mockery goes even further. He's like, well, maybe if you take Calendar, you might extend your life a little longer. A little longer. And he's coming forward little by little, and like he's giving Rand time to just turn and race to Calendar. The sword cannot be touched. But the doubts were still strong on Rand. Calendar could only be touched by Dragon Reborn, and if he allowed them to proclaim him for a hundred reasons, that seemed to leave him no choice at the time. But if he's truly the Dragon Reborn, if he actually went to go touch Kalindor, in truth, not just in a dream, would he meet an invisible wall while Bilal cut him down from behind? Now, I think this is funny. Why would you turn and run when you're literally facing somebody who can channel? Like, why don't you just move backwards or somewhere to the side or something? Like, still stay in a guard stance as you're backing up. He'd probably give you time to do it. But, for whatever reason, he's not thinking about that. So, I, I'm not really sure what's going on with that. Probably for the dramatic effect. So, he attacks Bilal with a sword. He knows the blade of fire wrought beside him. But it was pushed back. The falling leaf meant watered silk. So, the falling leaf... I imagine it's kind of a slow kind of down cut. But watered silk is going to be like an up block. The cat dances on the wall, meaning the boar rushes downhill. And the boar rushes downhill as like a slam down attack. And the cat dances on the wall is probably a deflection, if I were to guess on the name alone. The, rind the river undercuts the bank. Probably is an undercut, obviously. Um, and that almost lost Rand his head. He had to throw himself inelegantly to one side with the black flame brushing his hair, rolling to his feet to confront the stone falls from the mountain, which is going to be another downstroke. Now, I don't have enough information on each of them to tell you, you know, the specific details. Like, is it an actual slam down attack or is it something else entirely? Like, they could have seven different names for seven downstrokes, but they could be at different angles. They could be different levels of power. One could be a quick slash. One could be a slower slash, but hits harder. Um, one could be something that just batters the sword down into the person. So the person has to somehow survive it in one way or the other. There's a lot of potential ways it could go. So, I'm not really sure what they're going with in this, in the the specifics of it. Maybe somewhere, Robert Jordan has a list of the uh, particular movements and the names and everything attached to them to what they actually would translate to an actual Blade Master in real life. I don't know. They have cool names, though. So maybe that's just how he visualized them. So it helps us visualize it if, as well. But um, Bilal's driving him back towards Kalendor and a methodological methodological I think that's the word I don't even know <laughs> but it's very very obviously trying to drive him towards Kalendor methodically methodically that's the word jeesh brain farts are great let me tell you <laughs> but then all of a sudden there's shouts among the columns screams clash of steel but Rand's not really hearing them he and Bilal were no longer the only ones in the heart of the stone. Men in breastplates and rimmed helmets fought with swords against shadowy veiled shapes that darted among the columns with short spears stabbing. Some of the soldiers formed a rank. Arrows flashing out of the dinness took them in the throat, the face, wherever, and then they died in their line. Rand doesn't really notice the fighting, but even when the men falls dead within paces of him, his own fight was too desperate. All of his concentration was on this fight with Bilal. And he feels war wet warmth trickle down his side. His old wound from Falm was broken open. Or breaking open, I should say. In the process of being broken open. He stumbles suddenly, not seeing the dead man at his feet, until he was lying on his back atop his flute case on the stone floor. And Bilal raises blade of black fire, snarls, Take it! Take Kalandor and defend yourself! Take it or I will kill you now! If you will not take it, I will slay you! 
But then he hears a no. And even Bilal is a little start at the command at the woman's voice. He steps back out of the range of Ransor, turns his head to frown at Moraine as she comes strutting through the battle, and her eyes fixed on him, ignoring the screaming deaths around her. And he's like, I thought you were neatly out of the way, woman. No matter, you're only an annoyance, a stinging fly, a bite me. I will cage you with the others and teach you to serve the shadow with your puny powers. And he gives a contemptuous laugh and raised his free hand. But Moraine hadn't stopped or slowed when she spoke. She was no more than 30 paces from him when he moved his hand and she raised both of hers as well. But there's an instant of surprise on the Forsaken's face and he had time to scream, No! But then a bar of white fire, hotter than the sun, shot down from the Aes Sedai's hands, a glaring rod that banished all shadows. Before it, Bilal became a shape of shimmering motes, specks dancing in the light for less than a heartbeat, and flecks consumed before his cry faded away. There was a silence in the chamber as the bar of light vanished. Silence except for the moans of the wounded. The fighting had stopped dead, veiled men and men in breastplates alike standing as if stunned. But Moraine, coolly serene, it's like she's standing on a meadow, was like, you know, Rand, he's kind of right about one thing. You have to take Kalendor. He meant to slay you for it, but it is your birthright. Better by far that you knew more before your hand held that hilt, but you have come to the point now and there's no further time for learning. So take it, Rand. And whips of black lightning curled around Moraine, and she screams as they lifted her and hurled her to slide along the floor like a sack until she came up against one of the columns. Rand looks up where the lightning had come from, and there was a deeper shadow there near the top of the columns, a blackness that made all other shadows look like noonday. And from it, two eyes of fire were looking back at him. Over a course of time, the shadow descends, resolving into Balzaman, clothed in dead black, like a Merdral's black. But even that wasn't as dark as the shadow that clung to him. He hung in the air, two spans above the floor, glaring at Rand with rage and as fierce as his eyes. And he mentions, Twice in this life I have offered you the chance to serve me. Flames leapt in his mouth every time he roared like a furnace. Twice you have refused and wounded me. Now you will serve the Lord of the Grave in death. Die, Luce Theron, Kinslayer. Die, Randall Thor. It is time for you to die, and I take your soul. Sbalzman puts forth his hand, and Rand pushed himself up, threw himself desperately towards Kalendor, still glittering and flashing in midair. He did not know whether he could reach it, or even touch it if he could, but it was his only chance. Balzaman's blow struck him as he leapt, struck inside him, a ripping, crumpling, tearing something loose, trying to pull a part of him away. And Rand screams. He felt like he was collapsing, like an empty sack, as if he were being turned inside out. The pain in his side, the wound taken from Falma, was almost welcome, something to hang on to. Remember that he is alive. His hand closed convulsively on Kalendor's hilt. The one power surged through him, a torrent greater than he could believe, from Sidene into the sword. The crystal blade shines brighter than even Moraine's fire had. It was impossible to look at, impossible to see anything that about it that made it even a sword. Only the light blazed in his fist. He fought the flow, wrestled with the implacable tide that threatened to carry him, but all that was really him into the sword with it. For a heartbeat that took centuries, he hung, wavering, balanced on the brink of being scoured away like sand before a flash flood. With infinite slowness, the balance firmed. It was still as though he stood barefoot on a razor's edge above a bottomless drop. But something told him he was the best that could be expected. To channel this much of the power, he must dance on that sharpness as he danced the forms of the sword. Then he turned to face Balzamond. The tearing within him had ceased as soon as his hand touched the calendar. Only an instant had passed, yet it seemed to have lasted forever. You will not take my soul, he shouts, 
This time I mean to finish it once and for all. I mean to finish it now. Balzaman fled, man and shadow vanishing. Now, before I continue, I'd like to point out some things. Um, at least one. So when he's like, I will take your soul, you know, die now. You could take this at the, at face value and assume he just wants him dead. Like, that's it. Plain and simple. I want you done. Or you could take it as a little bit more of a convincing act than Bilal in terms of him to get the blade. And once he has gotten the blade, find a way to get it from him. Because, let's be honest, I have no idea how Bilal thought he was going to take it from him if he just blow up with the one power and just poof him or something like he might have more skill with the one power than Rand, but he doesn't necessarily have the power level of Rand holding Kalendor. So I'm not sure what the concept or the idea was supposed to be in terms of how Bilal was going to deal with it, but it obviously didn't occur to him that he could lose. But something's like that's something we don't get to actually like see happen or take place because obviously Moraine gets rid of him before that. So just some things I wanted to point out where it's a little weird because he's like, oh, I can flee. And then he goes flees to somewhere, which is what we're going to go into now. And then basically, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right term. Like, suckering him in, I guess. Like, having a strategically laid plan. But then the following also kind of contradicts that because he tries to go somewhere that Rand shouldn't be able to follow, but somehow does. So, this is something of a familiarity crisis, I guess. <laughs> so, Balzaman fl flees, and Rand stares, and he's like, there'd been a sense of folding as Balzaman left. Like, he twisted into something. Balzaman had bent what was. But the men are staring at him, and he ignored them, and Moraine crumpled at the column base, and Rand reached out through Kalendor and twisted reality to make a door somewhere else. He doesn't know where, but that that's where Balzaman had gone. And he just says some really boss words of, I am the hunter now, and just steps through. So, now we're switching over to Egwene's point of view. And from Egwene's point of view, the stone is shaking. It's ringing, and she's trying to catch her balance to stop. But there's no more sound, no more tremor. Whatever was causing it to happen it was already over. So she heads back towards where she was going, and there's a door of iron bars standing in her way with a lock as big as her head. So she channels Earth before she reaches it and then just pushes against the bar and the lock just tears in half. So she's heading through chambers trying to not look at the things hanging on the walls. Um, the whips and iron pincers were the most innocuous. And she kind of shudders and she pushes open a smaller iron gate and enters the corridor lined with rough wooden doors. And she sees the cells. She's like, but which cell? The wooden doors open obviously easily. Some are even unlocked, and the locks on the others lasted no longer than the larger lock previously. But every cell was empty, obviously. But no one would dream themselves into this place. Any prisoner who might manage to reach Teleronriad would probably dream of a pleasanter place, which is obviously why there's nobody here in the world of dreams as prisoners. But then she kind of feels a little bit of despair. She, she wanted to believe that finding the right cell would make the difference. Maybe finding it would be impossible, though. And just quarter after quarter, can't get find what she's looking for. But then eventually she sees a flicker or something ahead of her. A shape less substantial than Joya Byer. And it had been. And it's been a woman, though. So she's definitely sure of that. It's a woman seated on a bench beside one of the cell doors. And the image flickered into a being again and then was gone. It's come as like a pulsing light. There's no mistaking that slender neck and the pale, innocent-appearing face with its eyelids fluttering on the edge of sleep. Amiko Nagoyan. She's just drifting towards sleep, dreaming of her guard duties. 
What a way to live life. And apparently toying drowsily with one of the stolen Tirangrel. And Egwene could understand, because it had great effect to stop using the one that Varen had given her, even for a few days. But she knows it's possible to cut a woman off of the true source, even if she had already been embraced by Sidar, but severing a weave already established had to be much harder than damming the flow before it began. So she sits the patterns of the weaving, readies them up, making threads of spirit much stronger, this time thicker and heavier, a denser weave with a cutting edge like a knife. Although she's taken her time to make this as effective as possible. The wavering shape of the dark friend appeared again, and then Egwene struck with the flows of air and spirit. And for an instant, something seemed to resist the weaving of spirit, and she forced it with all her might, and it slid into place. Amiko Nagoyan screams, a thin sound, barely heard, about as faint as she herself was, and she doesn't seem more than just a shadow of what Joya Byer had been. But the bonds of the, the woven of air hold her, and she does not vanish again, and she gets just terror painted all over her face. Apparently she has a lovely face, and she seems to babble, but her shouts were whisper that were too soft for Egwene to understand. So Egwene ties and sets the weaves around the black sister and heads to the cell door. And she's kind of impatient, so she lets earth flood into the iron lock. It falls away in black dust, and as the mist dissolved completely before it struck the floor, and she opens the door and is not at all surprised that the cell is empty except for one burning rush torch. It's like, well, Amiko is bound and the door is open. And she was thinking of what to do next, but then she steps out of the dream. And wakes up to all the bruises, aches, and thirst, and the wall of the cell against her back, staring at the tightly shut cell door. She's like, well, obviously, whatever happens to the living things there is real when they wake, but what I did to the stone or iron or wood doesn't have any effect on the waking world. But Nynaeve and Elaine were still kneeling next to her. Nynaeve's like, well, whoever's out there screamed a few moments ago, but nothing else has happened. Did you get a way out? And Egwene's like, well, we should be able to walk out. I don't know why she would think this, because she literally just contradicts it with whole, of course, whatever happens to living things here is real, but what I did to stone or iron has no effect on the waking world. I thought she was supposed to be smart in her own head, but apparently she didn't get the memo. She's like, well, we should be able to just walk out. It's like, Amoko will not trouble us. Trouble us. That scream was her. And Elaine's like, I've been trying to embrace Sidar ever since you left. It's different now, but I'm still cut off. And Egwene tries to pull the emptiness inside of her and the rosebud opening to Sidar, but the invisible wall was still there, but shimmering. Now, to be fair to Egwene, it could be that she's like, oh, we can just walk out because of the one power, but that's not what she said. She just made it sound like she could just open the door without any extra help. So, you know what? I'll be nice. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. She thought she could channel. Which, obviously, the aches and bruises would have been an obvious choice of obviously knowing that that's not the case. Because, as we had learned in the last chapter, when she woke up covered in bruises and aches, that if they had the ability to use the one power, she would have been healed. Because Nynaeve would have been healing them. Although Nynaeve wouldn't be able to heal herself. But... There's moments as though she could feel the true source beginning to fill her with the one power, but the shield wavered in and out of existence for too fast to, her, to detect, and it might as well have still been solid. She stares at the other woman and is like, well, I bound her, I shielded her. She's a living thing, not a lifeless iron. She has to be shielded still. It's like, well, something has happened to the shield set on us, but Amiko is still managing to hold it. And Egwene sags against the wall again, and it's like, oh... Guess I'll have to do it again and see if I can get it to work. And Elaine's like, are you sure you can do this? Are you, you have the strength? Because you sound even weaker than you did before. And that took a lot to get out of you. So she's like, oh, I got enough strength there. She feels a bit more weary, less strong, but it's the only chance that she has that she knows of. And they kind of agree with her, even reluctantly. Nynaeve's like, can you go to sleep again so soon? And Egwene's like, eh, just sing to me like I was a little girl, like when I was a little girl, please. So Nynaeve 
hands holds one of hers and the stone ring clasped in the other and she closes her eyes and tries to find sleep in the wordless humming tune. <laughs> now we get to the best part. Matt. Matt enters cautiously through the wide doors of iron bars that are standing open and the room seems kind of empty of life. Sandar was still out in the hall trying to peer both ways at once. Certain that a high lord or maybe a hundred defenders or so would have just appeared at any moment. And there were no men in the room now, and by the looks of the half-eaten meals on the long table, they had left in quite the hurry. Obviously because of the fighting above, and from the looks of things on the walls, he was just glad he didn't have to meet any of them. Whips in different sizes, lengths, different thickness, different number of tails, pincers, tongs, clamps, irons. Things that look like metal boots, gauntlets, and helmets with great screws all over them as if to tighten them down. Things he could not even begin to guess the use of. If he had met the men who used these things, he thought he would surely have checked that they were dead before he walked away. Now, I like to point out that a lot of this gives me, like, massive Spanish Inquisition vibes. <laughs> Almost like an Iron Maiden kind of thing, or... Um, just like the amount of torture that they, they did back in the olden day. Alongside with the, the Tyran description of very, very much the phenotype of a Spaniard. Um, it, just, it just fits. So I, I think that's funny. Um, it'd be interesting to see a Spaniard and Vietnamese cultural, I guess, clothes, armor. Like, I guess the armor is technically not vietnamese but their are their architectural style they have some aspects like the, the little clog things they use certain things are like that but i just think they'd be kind of funny to see that combination It'd be very strange but he hisses at sandar he's like you're gonna stand out there all bloody night they go into the inner door barred like the outer but a little bit smaller without waiting for an answer and just goes through they find a whole bunch of rough wooden doors lit by the same rush torches as the room you just left and no more than 20 paces from him, a woman is sitting on a bench beside one of the doors, leaning back against the wall in a curiously stiff fashion. Her head slowly turns toward him at the sound of his boots, and he notices it's a pretty young woman. He wondered why she doesn't move more than her head, and why even that moved as if she were only half asleep. He's like thinking, like, well, maybe she's a prisoner. But out in the hall? Nobody with a face like that could be one of the people who uses the things on the walls. Well, that's why you shouldn't take things at first glance there, Matt. But she did almost look asleep with her eyes only partly open. The suffering on that lovely face surely made her one of her tortured, not a torturer. And Sanders like, Stop! She is Aes Sedai. She's one of the ones who took the women you seek. And Matt freezes in mid-step, staring at the woman. He remembers Moraine hurling balls of fire, and he wondered if he could deflect a ball of fire with his quarterstaff. Maybe my luck can extend to outrunning Aes Sedai, you know? And she's like, help me. Help me, please. And she looks nearly asleep, but she's pleading. And Matt blinks. She hadn't moved muscle below her neck. So cautiously, he steps a little closer, waving to Sandar to stop his groaning about her being Aes Sedai. And she moved her head to follow him, but no more than that. And a large iron key hung at her belt. So he kind of hesitates. And an Aes Sedai is what Sandar had said. Why doesn't she move? But he swallows as he eases the key free as carefully as if he were trying to take a piece of meat from a wolf's jaw. She rolls her eye towards the door beside her and made a sound like a cat that had just seen a huge dog come snarling into the room and knew there was no way out. But he's not sure what's going on, but as long as she doesn't try to stop him from opening that door, he doesn't really care. She just sat there like a stuffed scarecrow. But on the other end of things, you know, he wondered if there was something on the other side of that door to be worth being afraid. But, well, she's the one who took a Gwen and the others. It stands the reason she's guarding them. Sound logic, good sir. But tears leak from her eyes, and she's like, well, only she looks like it's a bloody half-man in there. <laughs> There's one way to find out, and propping his staff against the wall, he turns the key in the lock and flung open the door, ready to run if he had to. Nynaeve and Elaine were on the floor, with Egwene apparently sleeping between them, and he gasped the slight sight of Egwene's swollen face and changed his mind about her sleeping. 
The other two women turned toward him as he opened the door, and they were almost as battered as Egwene. He's like, burn me! And then he's like, Matram Cawthon, what are the letter you doing here? And he's like, I came to a bloody rescue you. Burn me if I expected to be greeted as if I had come to steal a pie. You can tell me why you look as if you've been fighting bears later, if you want. If Egwene can't walk, I'll carry her on my back. They're idle all over the stone, or near enough, and either they are killing the bloody defenders or the bloody defenders are killing them. But whichever way it is, we had better get out of here while we bloody well can, if we can. And she's like, mind your language. And Egwene gives him a very disapproving stare. And the women are typically really good at it. Neither of them have her full attention in it, though. They begin shaking Egwene as if she were not covered with more bruises than he'd ever seen in his life. Egwene's eyes fluttered open and she groans. It's like, well, why'd you wake me? I have to understand it. If I lose the bonds in her, she'll wake and I'll never catch her again. But if I do not, she cannot go all the way to sleep. But then she notices him and her eyes widen up. It's like, Matram Cawthon, what in the light are you doing here? I'm like, well, you can tell they're from the same village. They say the exact same thing. But Matt's just like, hey, Nani, if you tell her, I'm too busy trying to rescue her to watch my language. They're all staring beyond him, glaring as if they wish they had knives in their hands. He turns around, but all he sees is Jillian Sandar, looking as if he had swallowed a rotten plum hole. And he, I'm just imagining he would spin around, like, looking back at the women. It's just Jillian. <laughs> like, that's all I, that's all I have seen him. And he, what, are you, what are you guys so upset about? And, um... Sandar's like, well, they have cause. I, I betrayed them. But then he kind of addresses past Matt to the women. He's like, but I had to. The one with many honey-colored braids spoke to me, and I I had to do it. And for a long moment, the three could do stare, but Nanive's finally like, Leandrin has vile tricks, Master Sandar. Perhaps you're not entirely to blame. We can apportion guilt later. Matt's like, well, if that's all cleared up, can we go now? It was clear as mud to him, but he was more interested in leaving right then. The three women limped after him into the hall, but they stopped around the woman on the bench. She rolled her eyes at them and whimpered. She said, please, I'll come back to the light. I swear to obey you with the oath right in my hands. I swear, please do not. And Matt jumps as Nynaeve just rears back and thumps her with a swung fist, knocking her completely off the bench. And she lay there with her eyes closed as if all the way, finally. But even lying on her side, she was still in the exact same position as she had been in the bench. And Elaine's like, yay, it's gone! And Egwene rummages through the unconscious woman's pouch, transferring something that Matt couldn't make out her own, which would be the uh, the Tirangreal, the, the dream Tirangreal specifically. And, uh, yeah, it feels wonderful. Something changed about her when you hit her, Nynaeve, and I do not know what it was, but I felt... She lost consciousness. That's what happened. Um, and Elaine's like, yeah, I felt it too. And then he's like, well, I'd like to change everything. Last thing about her. She takes Egwene's head in her hands and Egwene rose on her toes, gasping. And then Nynaeve took her hands to put them, took her hands away to put them on Elaine. Egwene's bruises were gone. And Elaine's vanishes quickly. And Matt's like, blood and bloody ashes. What do you mean hitting a woman who's just sitting there? I don't think she could even move. They all look at him. And he makes a strangled kind of sound as the air seemed to turn to thick jelly around him. He's lifted into the air and his boots are dangling a good pace above the floor. And he's like, oh, burn me the power. Here I was afraid the Aes Sedai would use the bloody power on me and now the bloody women I'm rescuing do it. Burn me. And Egwene's like, you do not understand anything, Matram Cawthon. Now to be fair to Matt, you do not explain anything to him, Egwene. And then Nynaeve's like, well, until you do understand, I suggest you keep your opinions to yourself. And I'm thinking like, or another option. You could explain yourself. It doesn't take very long. It's like, they're Black Aja. Boom. Wow. Everybody understands. Or at least, or at least be on the way to understanding. He might go like, well, why, how, when, where, what? all that stuff but at least the information's out there so he can be like oh that's why but even if she is black aja i don't think matt would hit her i don't even think julian would hit her but elaine just gives him a glare like his mom's that made him think of his mom going out to grab a switch but then he finds himself giving him the grin that so often sent his mother after that switch 
It's like, burn me if they could do this. I don't see how anybody ever locked them in that cell in the first place. He's like, well, what I understand is that I got you out of something you couldn't get yourselves out of. And you all have as much gratitude as a bloody tar and a ferryman with a toothache. And Eve says, you are right. And then his boots suddenly hit the floor so hard that his teeth jar. But he could not, but he could move again. It's like, as much as it pains me to say it, Matt, you are right. And he wanted to say something sarcastic, but there's barely enough apology in her voice as it was. He's like, well, can we go now? With the fighting going on, Sandra thinks he and I can take you out by a small gate near the river. And Nynaeve's like, I'm not leaving just yet, Matt. I mean to find Leandrin and Skinner. And Egwene said the same thing. Well, I should say, Nynaeve said, I am not leaving just yet, Matt. Egwene said, I mean to find Leandrin and Skinner. Sounding as she meant to literally do it. And Elaine's like, all I want to do is pound Joya by her till she squeals. I will settle for anything, or settle for any of them. He's like, are you deaf? There's a battle going on out there, and I came to rescue you, and I mean to rescue you. And then they do this really annoying thing that I just imagine being Matt right now. I mean, it's not too much to experience the incredulity that he just is must be experiencing because Egwene comes up, pats his cheek as she walks by him, and so does Elaine. Nynaeve just merely sniffs. And he just stares after them with his mouth open. It's like, why didn't you say something? Yelling at Julian. And Julian's like, I saw what speaking earned you. I am no fool. <laughs> Props to Sandar for being a wise man. It's like, well, I'm not staying in the middle of the battle. He shouts at the woman. They're just disappearing through a small barred door. I'm leaving. Do you hear me? They don't even look back. Like, Probably get themselves killed out there. Somebody will stick a sword in them while they're looking for their other way. So he snarls and puts his quarter staff across his shoulder and starts after. He's like, are you just going to stand there? Yelling at Sandar. I didn't come this far to let them die now. Sandar catches up to him in the room with the whips. The three women are already gone. But women, or Matt had a feeling that they wouldn't be that hard to find. He's like, just find the, the men bloody hanging in midair. Bloody women. And he heads on a trot. Now, I'd like to point out that that literally wouldn't be something they could do. They couldn't just keep endlessly picking people up for one. Picking people off the floor does take a bit of power. Granted, they are pretty strong. But to hold the weave, you'd have to maintain it or tie it off. Tying it off takes time. And if you're in a hurry, you can't do that. And the more power you're using, you're going to let everyone who can wield the power know where you are. So the more power you use, the worse it gets. So if anything, they might just use it to just slap people out of the way. But that's about it. Now, I would like to point out that nowhere in this text does it say that Nynaeve is getting healed by either Elaine or Egwene or both combined. So, I'm not really sure how that went down. <sighs> but now, we're going to the more emotional part of the chapter, to Perrin. Perrin's heading down the, the halls of the stone grimly, searching for some signs of Fayo. Keep in mind, he's still in the wolf dream. He had rescued her twice more now, breaking her out of an iron cage, much like the one that held the Aiel and Remen. Once breaking open a steel chest with falcon worked on its side, both times she had melted into air after saying his name. Hopper trotted by his side, sniffing at the air, and as sharp as Perrin's nose was, the Hopper's was much, much, much sharper. And it had been Hopper who led him to the chest. Perrin wondered whether he's going to actually ever truly free her. There hadn't been much of a sign in a long time, and the halls of the stone were empty. Lamps burning, tapestries and weapons hanging on the walls, but nothing moved except himself and Hopper. Except that I think it was Rand. It had been a glimpse, but a man running as if chasing someone. He's like, it could not be him. It couldn't be. But I think it was. So Hopper quickened his steps suddenly, and Heads to another set of tall doors, these clad in bronze. Perrin tried to match the pace and stumbles and falls to his knees. He throws out a hand to catch himself short of dropping on his face, but weakness washes through him as if all of his muscle had gone to water. And eventually, after that receded, it took some strength and it was an effort to get to his feet. But Hopper turned to look at him. 
You are too, here too strongly, young bull. The flesh weakens. You do not care to hold on to it enough. Soon flesh and dream will die together. And Perrin's just like, find her. That's all I ask. Just find Fayil. Yellow eyes meet yellow eyes, and Hopper turns and trots down the doors. Beyond here, young bull. And Perrin reached the doors and pushed. They didn't budge. There seemed to be no way to open them. No handles, nothing to grip. But there was a tiny pattern worked into the metal, so fine his eye almost didn't see it. Falcons. Thousands of tiny falcons. He's like, she's got to be here. I don't think I can last much longer. So he yells as he swings his hammer against the bronze, and it rang like a great gong. And again he struck, and the peel deepened. And a third one, the bronze door shattered like his glass. Within a hundred paces from the broken doors, a circle of light surrounded a falcon chained to a perch. Darkness filled all the rest of the vast chamber. Darkness and faint rustlings of hundreds of wings. He steps into the room and a falcon stooped out of the murk, Talon scoring at his face as it flew by. He throws an arm across his eyes and Talon tore at his forearm, but he staggers towards the perch. Again and again, all these falcons come diving, striking, tearing at him, but he lumbers through it with blood pouring down his arms and his shoulders, that one arm protecting the eyes that he had fixed on the falcon on the perch. He had lost the hammer, but he didn't know where, but he knew that if he went to back to search for it, he would definitely die before he actually found it. As he reached the perch, the slicing talons drove him to his knees. He peered up under his arm at the falcon on the perch, and she stared back with dark, unblinking eyes. The chain that held her leg was fastened to the perch with a tiny lock shaped like a hedgehog. He seized the chain with both hands, careless of the other falcons, that now came a whirlwind of cutting talons around him, and with his last strength snapped it. Pain and the falcons brought darkness. His eyes opened to stinging agony, as if his face and arms and shoulders had been sliced with a thousand knives. But it didn't matter. Fayil was kneeling over him, those dark, tilted eyes filled with worry, wiping his face with a cloth already soaked in blood. My poor Perrin, she said softly. My poor blacksmith, you are hurt so badly. With an effort that cost more pain, he turned his head. This was the private dining room in the star, and near one leg of the table lay a wooden carving of a hedgehog, broken in half. Fayil, he whispered to her, my falcon. Now, I'd like to point out that the reason he's so damaged is because he entered the wolf dream pretty much literally. Like, he didn't just go to sleep and end up there. Like, he literally figuratively... Well, he literally, figuratively, figuratively, literally, whatever you want, to, you, know, you want to call it. Like, he went there in flesh, but while he was there, he changed form from wolf to man a couple times. So, it's... He's actually there, but the wolf dream is a bit odd. Put it that way. Um, We'll go into more detail about that when we get to it in the story. I don't want to get into it now because it'll ruin some other parts of the story until we get to there and some of you might figure out some little bits of information as we go about what's possible there what's not possible there even where it is all that fun stuff but now we're going to jump back to rand at for the very last part of the chapter and see what is going to happen in his pursuit of baalzaman So Rand's still in the heart of the stone, but it's a bit different. There are no fighting men here, no dead men, and no one but himself. But then there's a great gong ringing through the stone, and then again and again, and the stones beneath his feet resonated. A third time the booming came, but cut off abruptly as if the gong had shattered. Sound familiar? Literally just happened in the previous paragraphs. And all was still. He's like, where is this place? And where's Baalzaman? 
As if to respond to his thought, a blazing shaft like the one Moraine had shot out of the shadows among the columns, straight towards his chest. His wrist twisted the sword instinctively, and it was instinct as much as anything else that made him loose flows from Sidene into Kalandor, a flood of the power that made the sword blaze brighter even than the bar streaking at him. But his uncertain balance between existence and destruction wavered. Surely the torrent would consume him. But the shaft of light struck the blade of Kalandor and parted on its edge, forking to stream past on either side. Now, I gotta be honest, I have no idea why this happened or how this happened, but I have a theory. But I don't want to use it yet because uh, it's, I'm just kind of torn because I want, I want to mention it. Basically, the short of it is that Rand did something to make sure Kalendor could not get evaporated. Those of you who know, know. And if those of you who don't know, you'll find out later in the series. But I can't explain it now without ruining good large chunks of the series. So I'm not going to explain it. Just know that he did something to make the blade of Kalendor not get evaporated. And we'll leave it at that. But he feels his coat singe when it passes by and the wool was beginning to burn. But behind him, the two prongs of frozen fire of liquid light struck huge redstone columns. And where they struck, stone ceased to exist. And the burning bars bored through to other columns, severing those instantaneously as well. The heart of the stone rumbled as columns fell and shattered in clouds of dust, sprays of stone fragments. What fell into light, however, simply was not anymore. And that's exactly what Balefire does. It makes things cease to exist, and it does it instantaneously, and it, whatever fell into the light simply just didn't exist anymore. That's, that's the big thing to know about it. And then he hears a snarl of rage from the shadows, and the blazing shaft of pure white heat vanishes. Rand swung calendars if he was striking at something in front of him, and the white light obscuring the blade extended, blazed ahead, and sheared through redstone column that hid the snarl. The polished stone sliced like silk, and the column trembles, and pieces drop from the ceiling, smashing huge jagged chunks on the floor. But he heard the sound of boots running on stone. With calendar at the ready, he hurried after Balsamon. There was a tall archway heading out of the heart of the stone as it collapses and the entire wall falling into clouds of dust as rocks are trying to bury him, but he throws the, he throws the power at it and all became dust floating in the air. And he kept running. He's not sure what he's done. This is a common theme for this part. Or how, but he didn't have time to think about it. He runs after Balsamon's retreating footsteps echoing down the, stone, the halls of the stone. Merdral and Trollocs leapt out of thin air, huge bestial shapes and eyeless faces distorted with rage to kill, in hundreds, so they jammed the hall before him and behind. Scythe-like blades and swords of deadly black steel seeking his blood. But without knowing how, he turned them to vapor that parted before him and vanished. The air around him suddenly became choking soot, clogging his nostrils, shutting off breath, but he made it fresh air again, a cool mist. Flames leapt from the floor beneath his feet, spurted from the walls, the ceiling, furious jets that flashed tapestries and rugs, tables and chests to wisps of ash, flung ornaments and lamps ahead of them as drops of molten burning gold. He smashed the fires flat, hardened them into red glaze on the rock. The stones around him fade to mist, the stone faded away, reality trembles, and he could feel it unraveling, like himself was unraveling. He was about, he's being pushed out of there into some place where nothing existed at all. Kalandor blazed in his hands like a sun till he thought he would melt. He thought he himself would melt from the surge of the one power through him, of the flood that he somehow directed into sealing up a hole that had opened around him, into holding himself on the side of existence. The stone becomes solid again. He could not even begin to imagine what it was that he did, but the one power raged inside him until he barely knew himself, till he barely was himself till what was himself almost didn't exist. But the precarious stability was teetering out of control, but was stabilizing. 
Either side lay the endless fall, obliteration by the power that coursed through him into the sword. Only in the dance along the razor's sharp edge were there even more certain uncertain safety. Calendor shone in his fist until it seemed he carried the sun. Dimly within him, fluttering like a candle, flame in a storm, he was holding Calendor, and he could do anything, anything at all. Through endless corridors, he runs and dances along the razor, chasing the one who would slay him, the one he has to slay. There could be no other end this time. This time, one of them must die. That Balsamon knew it as well was clear. Always he fled, staying ahead of sight so that the only sounds of his flight pulled Rand on, but even fleeing, he turned into the Stone of Tear that was not the Stone of Tear against Rand, and Rand fought it back with instinct and guesses and chance fought and ran down the knife edge with the perfect balance of the power, the tool and weapon that would consume him utterly if he failed. Water fills the walls from the top to bottom, thick and black as the bottom of the ocean, choking off breath. He made it air again, unknowingly, and ran on. Suddenly the air gained weight until every inch of his skin supported a mountain, squeezing in from all directions. In the instance before he was crushed to nothingness, he chose tides out of the flood of power raging through him. He did not know how or why or which, but it was so fast to the thought of knowing. But the pressure vanishes. He pursued Balsamon, and the very air was abruptly solid rock encasing him, then molten stone, then nothing at all to fill his lungs. The ground beneath his boots pulled at him as if every pound suddenly weighed a thousand, and all weight vanished so that a step left him spinning in midair. Unseen maws gaped to rip his mind from his body, to tear away his soul. He sprang each trap and ran on. While Balsamon twisted to destroy him, he made right without being aware of how. Vaguely, he knew that in some way he had brought things back into natural balance, forced them into line with his own dance down that impossibly thin divide between existence and nothingness. But that knowledge was distant. All his awareness lay in the pursuit, the hunt, in the death that must end it. And then he was in the heart of the stone again, stalking through rubbled gap that had been a wall. Some of the columns hung like broken teeth now. Balsamon backed away from him, eyes burning, shadow cloaking him. Black lines like steel wires seemed to run off from Balsamon into the darkness, mounding around him, vanishing into unimaginable heights and distances within the blackness. I will not be undone, Balsamon cries. His mouth was fire. His shriek echoed among the columns. I cannot be defeated. Aid me. And some of the darkness shrouding him drifted into his hands, formed a ball so black it seemed to soak up even the light of Kalendor. Sudden triumph blazed in the flames of his eyes. Rand shouts, You are destroyed! Kalendor spun in his hands. Its light roiled the darkness, severed the steel black lines around Balsamon, and Balsamon convulsed. As if there were two of them, he seemed to dwindle and grow larger at the same time. You are undone! As Rand plunged the shining blade into Balsamon's chest. Balsamon screamed, and the fires of his face flared wildly. Fool! The great lord of the dark can never be defeated! And Rand pulls Kalendor's blade free as Balsamon's body sagged and began to fall, the shadow around him vanishing. But suddenly, Rand was in another heart of the stone, surrounded by columns still whole, fighting men screaming and dying, veiled men and men in breastplates and helmets. Moraine still lay crumpled at the base of a redstone column. And at the feet of Rand lay the body of a man, sprawled on his back with a hole burned through his chest. He might have been a handsome man in his middle years, except that where his eyes and mouth should have been were only pits from which rose tendrils of black smoke. I've done it. I've killed Balsamon, he thought. I killed Shaitan. I have won the last battle. Light, I am the dragon reborn, the breaker of nations, the breaker of the world. No, I will end the breaking, end the killing. I will make it end. So he raised Kalendor high above his head. Silver lightning crackled from the blade, jagged streaks arching towards the great dome above. Stop, 
shouts. The fighting ceased. Men stared at him in wonder over black veils from beneath the rims of round helmets. I am Randall Thor, he yells out. His voice rang throughout the chamber. I am the dragon reborn, and Kalandor shone in his grasp. One by one, veiled men and helmeted, they knelt to him, crying, The dragon is reborn! The dragon is reborn! <sighs> well, that happened. <laughs> I was trying to remember, there was a note I had thought of, and I was trying to figure out exactly um, how to put it. And then I was just like, well, I don't want to stop. I want to keep going. Um, oh, yes, that's what it was. So, Kalendor, right, is a sword made of crystal. Except it's, this, it's literally called the sword that is not a sword because it's not just a sword. But it's made of crystal, and it doesn't say anything about the crystal being sharpened on any edges, right? So he somehow plunges this into Balzaman, apparently with ease, and it's literally just crystal. Like, take a chunk of crystal and try to th shove that through somebody. It's not going to be very easy. So there's got to be something magical at play. There's got to be some force that will change the outcome. Like, that, I don't know, cuts through things like butter or something like that. I don't know. But it's a sword that's not a sword, so I imagine it looks like a sword, but it's not obviously actually a sword. It's like walking around with a glass sword. It's not actually a sword, but it looks like a sword. So it's a sword that's not a sword kind of thing. So I thought that was an interesting thing that happened, at least that I noticed. But the other part that I thought was weird is the very last, like, line. I mean, there's technically exclamation points in this line, but it's the last part of the entire thing. It says, one by one, veiled men and helmeted, they knelt to him, crying, the dragon is reborn, the dragon is reborn. The veiled men are Aiel, the Aiel don't care one little snootles about the dragon reborn. So, saying that the dragon is reborn doesn't really matter, so why are the veiled men, why are the Aiel kneeling to him, crying, the dragon is reborn, when that would make sense for the defenders of the stone to say it? So I'm not really sure why that happened, but it sounds a little odd to my ears. But either way, um, that was just something I noticed and I thought was interesting. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Um, the next chapter is going to be a much shorter chapter than the last two episodes slash chapters, but it'll be the final one of this particular book so hopefully you guys will join me for that one as well I know it was a bit of a long path for this particular book some books are longer some books are shorter it all depends but typically who I mean it doesn't matter as much as long as you're having fun so hopefully you're having fun and learning a lot of cool stuff um, that being said let me know what you guys thought I'd love to hear about your thoughts in this area um, if you'd like, you could reach out on Facebook, Tales of Red Arm, and let me know what you were thinking, send me a message, or comment on a post or something, whatever it is you'd like. Um, also, reach out on Twitter slash X, whatever it's called now, um, which is at Tales of Red Arm. And you can reach, comment on something there or whatever. On both of those, I also have the Discord link. I should have them up. I believe they are up. Um, and you can join the Discord if you would like to. And you can kind of directly talk to me at more mm, faster than email speed. Let's put it that way. Or faster than messenger speed. Um, and maybe you'll even get to be in a chat room with me or something. We can talk about things and I could answer questions if you have any or if you have something you need to tell me that'd be fine too you can also reach out to me directly through email which is talesoverarm at gmail.com um, I can also get you the link to discord that way if you need it 
to that way because you can't get access to the other two things or whatever it is you would like. I'd love to just hang out and talk to you guys. So um, we'll go ahead and call it good here. Uh, that was a very long chapter like the one before it, but uh, a lot happened. So I am definitely looking forward to book number four because it's personally one of my favorites and it's pretty much everyone's favorite because it's just a really, it's a really, really good book. But this was also a fantastic book as well. But book number four is when the story really kicks off for all characters that have their own stories and stuff. So we'll go ahead and end it there. And thanks everybody for coming by and hopefully I will see you in the next one. So take care. Until then. Drink all night and dance all day, and on the girls will spend our pay. And when we're done, then we'll away to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and snuggle the girls be they short or tall. And follow your map wherever he calls to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and snuggle the girls be they short or tall. Then follow Lord Matt wherever he calls to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll give a yell with a bloody curse, and hog the mags, it could be worse. Let's ride away with the dark woods first to dance with Jack of the Shadows. Yeah! <laughs>